Shalom. Thank you for listening to this podcast of the Jayberg Wilk Learning Series. I am Shmuley Yanklowitz, President and Dean of Valley Beit Midrash. Here at VBM, we strive to bring you only the highest quality of Jewish learning. Bringing pluralistic and innovative Jewish programming to the Jewish community that craves substance and insight is our passion, but we cannot do it alone. To support our endeavors, please consider donating a tax-deductible contribution to our organization. By doing so, you will be supporting meaningful Jewish educational content, funding the next generation of leaders, as well as furthering Jewish wisdom to people all over the country and all over the world. Please visit www.valleybatemadrash.org. Thank you so much and enjoy the program. Introduction to sort of why this topic. Um, Rabbi Shmuley talked a little bit about how um, I started with a doctorate in English literature. Um, and then I thought that I was really going to focus on studying English texts. Um, I was really interested in how computers quote unquote read literature, how you could analyze. 2,000 books all at once by feeding them into a computer and having the computer tell you similarities, differences. Um, the computer is not a particularly nuanced reader. It doesn't say things like, this was a good book, this was a bad book. It will say things like, the word there appeared more often in this book than in that book, which sometimes is actually really interesting because you can find out a lot about authors and which authors write like other authors by analyzing these small moments. But at the end of the day, Computers don't read like we do. They don't feel like we do about books. Long story short, I got very distracted by the Talmud in my attempt to find something that would be interesting to study using digital means. I ended up writing my dissertation about the Talmud and about Frankenstein. So this whole technology creatures thing has always kind of been in my wheelhouse, one of my interests. And as I started Maharat, I also got really interested in kind of almost science fictional Judaism. In part, questions like the golem, which is one of those grand legends that we hear so much about, and yet I don't actually know anyone who's created one, <laughs> probably. Or at least if I do, they haven't told me. But you don't know me. <laughs> right. Now I have to ask everyone, well, you have a golem, so clearly, clearly I'm in the right company. But at the end of the day, there are these questions that aren't necessarily relevant yet, but that might be in the future. Um, earlier today, I spoke about Rabbi Google and the idea of, can a search engine ever replace a rabbi? We decided no. Um, <laughs> there are other interesting questions that kind of are on the same thing. If you, how do you celebrate the holidays on another planet when you don't have the cycle of the moon? <laughs> I'm just so blown away of how you can take those two things and put them together and write a dissertation on it. <laughs> oh, Frankenstein and the Talmud? Yes. That, <laughs> it's like, to me, yeah. I've, I've said a few times that I got away with a lot in my graduate program. Um, this is almost certainly true. But for me, the reason those two texts were so interesting is that they're both incredibly canonical. Um, the two disciplines that study them return to them again and again and again. And also, people keep doing new things with them. People keep making websites and finding new ways to teach Talmud. People keep making new movies and video games and digital books and artifacts about Frankenstein in the same way that they're so culturally important that they both became really interesting case studies for what can, what can technology do with these things that are clearly so important to people and also constantly being remixed and revitalized and Frankenstein itself becomes sort of the language that we talk about things, that people have called ebooks Frankenbooks. This was back before they were kind of ubiquitous and boring. Um, people talk about, even like the term revitalized, brought back to life, links back into Frankenstein. So there's all these like strange connections that, especially when you have to write about a 300-page dissertation, you start to find um, when you immerse yourself too much into text, then the connections start to jump out at you. And yet at the same time, I think that they both start to raise questions about what exactly um, are we doing? What's our purpose? What's our role? 
and that's kind of a little bit of what we're going to talk about tonight, this question of um, was the golem Jewish taps into all these interesting ideas that we don't necessarily have the ability to approach through ordinary conversation. Um, who counts as Jewish? Who counts as human? What, is it, what does it mean to be intelligent? In the same way that science fiction and fantasy often are modes of writing that let people ask, question, ask really big questions um, and remove them a little bit from the world that we live in, and so answer them in a way that isn't as fraught as trying to face them head on. I think that asking these questions sort of in the realm of Judaism lets us do something similar. It lets us think about things that might be a little fraught and really hard to talk about, such as what, what do we expect of someone when we're talking about Judaism? What do we mean when we say this person can be a Jew? And at the same time, it's a lot less scary for a change when we're using it in terms of robots and golems and things like that. And also, um, and this in some ways is me speaking as someone who's in rabbinic training, there's a lot of, a lot of the questions that I feel like I get asked are either questions that are already, the answer's already known, it's just the person who's asking the question doesn't know the answer, or the questions are incredibly cutting edge and fraught and people's lives are at stake, which is some of the stuff that I think my teachers and my teacher's teachers are deciding now, and that feels very, very hard to wade into as someone who's not very experienced yet. But a question like this, which is really interesting, hasn't been settled yet, and unless I'm very, very wrong, doesn't have any practical ramifications right now, is a really fun one to wade into and see kind of how do we decide these things? Because again, it's that remove where it's not, it's not fraught, it's not dangerous, but it's still fun and it's still exciting and it's still out there. So for the next, let's see how long. Yeah, for the next hour and 10 minutes or so, we are going to pretend to be, let's say 31st century rabbis. It's a thousand years from now. Robots exist. Our machine intelligence has evolved to the point where they interact with us almost like normal humans. They talk, we have conversations, they have full rights and autonomy, and us 31st century rabbis have a robot in our office who comes up to us and says, Rabbi, I want to convert to Judaism. And we say, thank you for telling me. How do we respond? How do we think about this question? So, and this is something that I have actually thought about, so we're gonna look at the sources and see maybe if we can figure out a way to answer this question, and maybe through answering it, actually get at some of the questions behind it. Because at the end of the day, this is actually a question that is equal to the sum of its parts. If you're asking about Jewish artificial intelligence, Jewish robots, then all, all you need to do is answer, what does it mean to be Jewish? What does it mean for someone to be artificial? And what is intelligence? So like, like we could do that in an hour, right? No big deal. <laughs> in a thousand years. And yeah, in a thousand years in an hour. <laughs> Hopefully it won't feel like that. Um, but the nice thing about this is that all these questions are in some ways already taken up by Jewish sources. You might not think so, but in different places, in different regions of Jewish text, people have been grappling with these questions. So we're going to start with um, the first of these questions, um, the question of what exactly does it mean to be Jewish? And as an example, we're going to take one of the first converts to Judaism that we know of, um, Ruth. So just to do a quick plot sketch of what exactly is going on up until this point in the source that I've given you, um, we are sort of in the days of the judges. We are in the lands of Moab. There's a woman named Naomi. Her, she, her husband, and her sons fled Israel during a famine. Um, and the famine has now ended. And while in exile in Moab, her husband died, her two sons have died. But before they died, they married two Moabite women, Ruth and Orpah. And Naomi, seeing that the famine has ended, seeing that her family is here is gone, wants to return to Israel to her people. And so she decides to go back, and her daughter-in-laws say that they will follow her. 
and she tells them to turn back. And one of them, Orpah, decides, all right, she makes a good case. She says, you have no reason to follow me. These aren't your people. Go back, go back to your father's houses, marry again, live a good life. Thank you, thank you for staying with me as long as you have. And Orpah says, all right, thank you, and she leaves. And Ruth, Ruth on the other hand, responds thus. Um, so I think, because I am apparently the one with the mic. I think I will, I will do the reading for a little bit, and then we'll talk about it afterwards. OK, so English or Hebrew? English. English. Awesome. <laughs> but Ruth replied, do not urge me to leave you, to turn back and not follow you. For wherever you go, I will go. Wherever you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, your God my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. Thus and more may the Lord do to me if anything but death parts me from you. When Naomi saw how determined she was to go with her, she ceased to argue. So that is Ruth's moment. And the conversation ends there. And they go, they go back to the land of Israel. So if you had to summarize Ruth's admittedly not very long speech, what would you say is, is the key part of it? What's the crux? It's, it's her loyalty to her mother-in-law. Right, so it's about loyalty. Um, can you elaborate a little more on what, she said, what you think is the most important thing that she's being loyal to? Well, her, her mother-in-law's habits and customs. Your God will be my God. So she's embracing the, the one God, and I don't and forsaking everything that's happened in, in her youth and adolescence. OK, so we start with someone who says, what you will do, I will do. I will move from being a person the way I grew up to being a person like you are right now. Excellent. But what we don't know is how she grew up and what she believed and what her principles were. Right. And were they so bad that she doesn't feel badly about abandoning that? Mm -hmm. Yeah, we get, we get very little about Ruth basically before this moment. Um, as you said, she might have grown up in a home where this felt, where being with her husband's family felt much better. Mm -hmm. um, we could even, it's also possible that it was the reverse. Maybe this isn't that big of a jump for her, so she's comfortable making that jump. Maybe as soon as she married Naomi's son, she decided, she started taking this on, and now it would be strange for her to go back. She's very much sort of a blank, a blank canvas here, um, which I think is in part why the rabbis maybe read, read the rules of conversion into what she says here. Um, if you were taking this as a model of conversion, what, what would you tell a convert that they needed to do then? Just accept God. I mean, it's pretty, I mind that's her one and only positive motion. Right. So, a, just saying, speaking out loud, or maybe even in your heart, I'm going to do this. Accepting the mitzvah. Right, yeah. Um, accepting, accepting the, bleh, sorry. Accepting the mitzvah. Do you, is that something that you think is specific in the text or just kind of a part of? I think it's underlying. It's not specifically spelled out. Right. If you, that's how... Her husband had led his life, and she wants to continue that. That's what I get from Right. So if your God is going to be my God, then what your God commands you must also be what I am then commanded to do. It could be do. that, or it could also be your people should be my people. Mm -hmm. It means there's a social conventions of how we live sure. our lives. Yeah. So yeah, it's interesting. It could be both true. Yeah, it's interesting in some ways. It feels like it expands out, that it starts with wherever you go, I will go. Those are like fairly simple actions. Um, I'm just going to walk after you. And then wherever you lodge, I will lodge. So not just um, walking, but actually staying, spending more time with someone. Your people shall be my people, expands out even further. Now I'm part of a community. Now I have these obligations. And your God shall be my God. And then it ends, or sort of the part where she talks about being alive, ends with this much grander ideological idea. That's a change not only in her actions, not only where she is, not only who she's with, but what she thinks. So it kind of, so 
I read it a little bit as these are harder things as it expands outward. In some ways, it's easy to follow someone. In some ways, it's very hard to change your mind. Or you could read it in the reverse. Once you've changed your mind, it's really easy to follow somebody. Well, the, the first several, your pet would do. <laughs> your pet would follow you. It would lodge where you lodge. Mm -hmm. It's accepting God is the human portion of this to me. Right. That's, that's what makes it feel different than just kind of a regular story of one person who cares deeply about another and wants to stay with them. Yeah. So I really like the idea that this focus on the, um, in Hebrew it's the Elokai Elokai, your God shall be my God. This moment that for Ruth, I think, and I do wonder whether she actually knows this or not, that this is, that this is going to be a transformative moment for her or whether that's something that comes later. Um, I should also note, although it's not here on the sheet, there are some commentaries that think that an integral part of Ruth's conversion is also her marriage, that even had she said all of this, if she hadn't been married to a Jewish man, then her conversion wouldn't have taken place. Um, it's a possibility that is brought up. It's not necessarily one that provides a model for future generations the way we think about conversion now, but especially in the culture she lived in, it's not unreasonable to wonder whether um, women often became part of their husband's households and cultures. And so, and the idea of a woman who did that without also then marrying in is really complicated. And I think that's what makes Ruth's story here so beautiful, that this isn't what she says when um, she marries, I want to say it's Kilion, but I can't remember which of Naomi's sons she marries, or later on um, when she marries Boaz at the end of the story. She says it here, when she's already a widow, when she's, there's no guarantee that she's going to be um, a wife ever again, and yet this is still her moment, which takes it out of all those other contexts where people change who they are for marriage, for, for some other reason. It's purely kind of in the mode of Abraham, realizing, that, realizing monotheism is the way to go, and deciding there is one God and I'm going to worship that God, that's kind of what Ruth does here, except she does it through a slightly different context. So, okay, so that's sort of our first model of conversion of somebody who was Jewish, who wasn't Jewish and now is. Yeah. So you touched upon a question that I have. Did she not consider conversion prior to marrying Naomi's son? Or it wasn't done at that point? My, just got married. Right. My guess is that it wasn't done. And if conversion, it's possible that conversion wouldn't be necessary, that by virtue of the fact that she married into a Jewish family, she would be considered Jewish. Or since one of the, um, one of the issues that comes up to some degree, in the story of Ruth, is who, which of the non-Jewish nations a Jewish man is allowed to marry. Um, the question of a woman can't marry someone from Moab. Can a man marry? Can a man marry a woman from Moab? Is another kind of twist of the story that comes up later. So, yeah, I'm not sure that it, I'm not sure that it would have come up. Both because we actually don't know if she met any Jews before she met um, Naomi's family. That might have just been her first experience with them. We, again, she's, su she's such an empty character until she starts to speak for the first time. So we don't really know her history. We, she comes to life basically in this moment for us, when she speaks for the first time, when she takes charge of her future. And from there on, we get to know her very well. But we don't really know very much about her at all until, until she speaks up for this first moment. You're welcome. So, this is model number one. Model number two is from a very different kind of text. Instead of a story, this is a code of law. Instead of something that is focused in narrative and trying to take us through an experience, it's something that is meant to be guidelines for how to behave. So this is what Maimonides, who lived from probably 1135 to 1204 in Muslim Spain and then North Africa, um, this is what he has to say. He wrote one of the first codes of Jewish law 
what was notable about his was that he was the first person to think about organizing things by topic instead of by the order in which it appeared in the Gemara, which makes every person after really, really grateful for him because it is really hard to know where things are in the Gemara, whereas he puts in chapter headings and paragraphs and tells you what, exactly what he's talking about. So we are forever grateful to his organizational skills. And yet, he also um, distills down a lot of information that was in the Talmud and brings it for, practi for practical purposes. This is what you have to do. So this is what he says conversion looks like. Throughout the generations, any non-Jew who wants to enter the covenant and come in under the wings of the presence of God accepts upon him or herself the yoke of Torah. He needs circumcision, immersion, and a temple offering. If female, she needs only immersion and an offering. As it is said, as for you, so for the foreigner. That is to say, just as you entered the covenant via circumcision, immersion, and an offering, so to the foreigner shall enter via circumcision, immersion, and an offering. So here's Maimonides. What, what would you say is the key part of, of what he talks about here? This is instruction. It's like a recipe. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> How to create one Jew. <laughs> A, step B, step C. Right. Here. There's, there's nothing in here about embracing the religion, embracing the, you know, the one God, the, one God, the, the mitzvot. Right. It's just mechanical. Yeah, this is very practice-based. Take, take woman, add water, have Jew. Um, exactly. Um, and also because he's writing with the presumption that one day the temple might be rebuilt, so he adds in the offering, but it's understood that if there is no temple, then it's just immersion for a woman and just immersion and circumcision for a man. So yeah, um, there is one little note that is familiar us from the Ruth story, um, where he says, accepts upon him or herself the yoke of Torah. This idea that um, you have to kind of the, your people shall be my people, your God shall be my God element, De deciding to the Hebrew term is ol, ol Torah. So literally the burden, the yoke, being, being subject to this. But based on, based on the way that he says it here, it's actually really unclear whether um, that's, a that's part of the conversion or merely a precondition. That in order, to in order to convert in the first place, of course you need to be willing to practice like a Jew. And then once you're willing, here are the things you need to do in order to move from willingness to actually Jewish. Or is this also part of the process that what is required to convert to Judaism, um, the, declar the declaration either I accept the Torah or your God is my God. And then in order to, and then part two is these, is circumcision and immersion or just immersion depending on one's gender. So what do you think? Precondition or necessary part? It's the necessary part. Necessary part. That's how I think. I read it as a precondition. <laughs> <laughs> so I think, he, I think he intends it to be a necessary part. Um, I think he can't also really conceive of somebody who might go through the motions of conversion without having the intent in mind. My suspicion is that what he's trying to do is differentiate between the intention and the action. That there are plenty of commandments that one can do without intending, and there are plenty of commandments that require intent. So it's possible that what he's making clear here is that if you um, are a woman and you take a bath in the Pacific Ocean, and you don't intend to become Jewish, but by virtue of the fact that you immersed yourself, you're not suddenly Jewish. Like, the ocean doesn't have that power. There needs to be some kind of intent to convert. And for him, I'm not actually sure if there's a distinction between intending to convert and intending to accept all of the commandments. I think that that's actually an interesting problem that comes up more, where people's relationship to Judaism might not necessarily be as commandment-based now as it would have been for him. So he doesn't see that distinction. But at the end of the day, um, I'm going to cheat and reverse my question slightly. I'm not really sure if there's a distinction between um, having it as a precondition or it being a necessary part. The only 
issue that I see is sort of if you don't have your Ruth moment, if you don't stand up and say, I am accepting upon myself the Judaism and the laws of Torah, but you think it in your mind, then what happens? Are you necessarily, um, do, you, do you need to do it explicitly? Is this just like Ruth where you have to, you have to declare it? Or is just this something that needs to be on your mind beforehand um, based on based on the way that we described it versus a as a necessary part versus a precondition, I could see that maybe being a distinction. But also, at the end of the day, I'm not actually sure that it is that different. Um, so I would read it as he tries to collapse the two. All right. Yes, yeah. Made the declaration. Mm -hmm. And only God heard it. God knows. Yeah. God. God knows people's intent in general. And also, the other reason for saying that while it might be a precondition, it's not necessarily part of the act, is what, what do you do with someone who converts and then decides afterwards, you know, this is a lot harder than I thought. I, I want to stay Jewish, but I'm not interested in this kosher thing. Like, I really, really miss cheeseburgers. Um, I'm told they're really good. I imagine one day when we figure out how to grow lab-grown meat, I will find out whether they're really good. But so somebody who at some point decides that they are not bound by the mitzvot in the way that they said they were when they convert, there's this really strong principle in Judaism of we don't undo conversion. We might argue that that person is behaving in a way that is not appropriate, which depending on which denomination of Judaism may hold true. But we're not going to say you're not... like. We don't retroactively undo conversion, which is kind of uh, a point in the favor of being, it kind of being a, um, a necessary precondition. Because if it was true in the moment, if it was true while you were doing the conversion, then the fact that it maybe isn't true later isn't as important. Whereas if the declaration itself is part of the conversion process, then maybe it wouldn't be, then maybe we would say that if the declaration was false, then the conversion is false. But I also don't necessarily think we need to say that. I think we can say in the same way that the declaration was true in the moment, that when I make a promise to my daughter that I'm going to give her a lollipop and then I don't, it wasn't that I promised falsely, it's that I legit, something legitimately changed, it might have been my memory, in between point one and point two. But like, it was true when I said it. Um, and it will probably come true at some point because four-year-olds are notorious for demanding lollipops. So, that, so those are basically our two models for um, conversion, and they kind of get collapsed together in the end. This idea that you have to go through the behavior, but also you have to, have, you have to know what you're doing. You have to intend it. Question? Well, you know, we are constantly learning. Mm -hmm. <laughs> sessions like this, why we go to tours then. So what I mean when I say it today yeah. could have a totally different meaning, even though I, I may feel as Jewish or as spiritual or as connected mm -hmm. next week. Uh, you know, I, yeah. I'm learning something tonight that m might change how I view Judaism and how yeah. I view my Judaism in particular. Mm -hmm. So again, I, I think that's why it's a, it's a precedent. Because at that moment, I, you know, here's my understanding and I'm willing to accept that. Now, as, you know, as I change, hopefully, you know, sometimes for the good, sometimes not for the good, Right. doesn't mean I ch I've changed my initial obligation or initial commitment to what I thought Judaism was. Yeah, the idea that I may not be the same person I was yesterday, but I evolved out of that person. And who I am now might look different, but overall, or my idea of what it means to be committed is different, but the concept of committedness maybe isn't. And yeah, conversion very, is very fraught in many ways because it's such a strong declaration for the future. Um, so many of our mitzvot are about sort of the here and now. Um, this is what you can't do in this moment. This is what you should do in this moment. Giving tzedakah, well, one may be a charitable person one's whole life. Each moment of giving is its own moment. It's not necessarily a promise for the future. This is one of those few things that really is an investment. And so we're both investing in our future selves and also declare, declaring who we are now. Um, I think one of the most key parts is that the person who's doing it needs to be able to take these actions and also needs to be able to have intent. 
that in order to convert to Judaism, it's not enough to just go through the motions. There has to be some sort of mind, thought, idea behind it, whether it's a woman leaving her home, a man in Spain coming to Maimonides saying, hey, this Judaism thing seems pretty cool. Tell me about it. There has to be, there has to be intent. Somebody has to do it. Hi, this is Shmuley Yanklowitz. I hope you've been enjoying and learning something new from this podcast. If you have a moment, please consider making a contribution at www.valleybaitmidrash.org. Thank you so much, and now back to the learning. So, so that's sort of our first, we have intent and action, it are what it means to be Jewish, whether it evolve, they evolve out of one another and be, it's a precondition and then the fulfillment of the condition, or whether they're all pulled into one as one singular moment of conversion, all of which draws on these things. All right. We're a third of the way down. We're great. Um, <laughs> the next question is artificial beings. What is their status and what are they? Um, so this source conveniently comes from the Gemara, which absolutely understood that robots were one day going to be a thing. Um, the great thing about the Gemara is that it is not one genre of literature. Sometimes it's a code of law. Sometimes it's a collection of rabbinic fairy tales. Sometimes it's just so stories. Sometimes it feels like minutes from a rabbi's day. It collects all of them together and just sort of puts them one after another, and you end up getting this amazing amalgam of different kinds of stories. So this story um, comes in the middle of the rabbis are interpreting a bunch of different verses. And somebody makes an assertion that um, the truly righteous are given godlike powers. And how do we know this? Well, they give the following example. Um, Rava Baragavra. The rabbi named Rava created a person, as, as one does on a Tuesday. Um, <laughs> Rava sent this person to Rabbi Zera, presumably on an errand. We don't actually know. The Gemara is incredibly sparse with details. And Rabbi Zera would say something to this person that Rabbi sent, but the person wouldn't answer. And so Rabbi Zera's obvious conclusion is as follows. Rabbi Zera said to him, you must have been created by one of the learned group, one of the chaverim. Return to your dust. Go back to earth. Um, so here's our golem. Rava decided that the best way to run errands would be to form a human being out of dust and clay and send him off to his, his friends. And when he gets there, his friend tries to have a conversation with him fails, and Rabbi Zeyra's response is, oh, okay, you must not be a real person. You must have been created by one of, the, by one of my other rabbis. Go back to dust. End story. Um, so, so what do you make of this story? What is it, what is it saying? <laughs> We're asking the easy questions here tonight. <laughs> you could create... Right, so this is an example of somebody who created a person-like object, but not really a person, because if it was really a person, then it would be ensouled. It would be real in some sense. This isn't, this isn't real. It needs, are you familiar with the book The Velveteen Bunny? Yeah, so it kind of needs, it, it needs someone to make, right now it's a stuffed animal, it needs someone to turn it into something real. Um, Rabbi Zera doesn't do that. Rabbi Zera sends it back to dust. Um, another sort of conclusion is that if this was a real person, Rabbi Zera would be murdering it by sending it back to dust. The fact that that doesn't seem to come up at all suggests pretty strongly that this is more like taking apart sort of a robot than it would be like actually dealing with a person. Um, so there's two, I think, important questions. The first is, if we're going to use this as a text to prove something about artificial life, does it matter that it, whether or not it actually happens? because the Talmud tells a lot of stories, some of which are very believable and some of which you start wondering. Um, what, does it matter if we think the story didn't happen? Why or why not? So if we didn't think the story happened, why are we even talking about it? <laughs> it's an allegory. Okay. It's an what do you mean by that? that 
man doesn't have the ability to create another life form. Only mm -hmm. God can do that. God breathes life into you. We, you know, we can make that robot, or, you know, or that golem, or mm -hmm. okay, but we can't give it a human soul, a human spirit, a psyche. Only God can do that. Right. So this story, in some ways, is a counter argument to the point before: human beings have godlike powers. Well, no, actually, they don't, because even if we imagined a human being who could create a person just like God could, that person wouldn't really be human, wouldn't really be like us. It would be different. Um, yeah, so I think the rabbis kind of do what we do with fiction, where fiction lets us approach things that we wouldn't necessarily have access to if they didn't happen in our real lives. So I think the rabbis are also torn by this question of sort of what constitutes a person. Um, and they approach it through magic, because that, in some ways, is the science of their day. That's how incredible things happened, by magic, um, which many of them also very strongly believed in. So um, the part after this is also interesting, because it tells a story of three different rabbis who would every Friday get together, um, read from a book called Sefer Yetzirah, the book of sort of creating, would create for themselves a three-year-old calf, shakht it, and have it for Shabbos dinner. Just create it. And <laughs> it's, right, well, it's way easier than obviously like going to a butcher and spending money, just do ma use magic. But the, rab but the rabbis are very clearly caught up in this question of, well, what is the status of that meat? What do you do with it? And it's really interesting because here we are, 2,000 years later, I mentioned possibly kosher cheeseburgers. If we could create meat out of nothingness like the rabbis do, what's its status? So they're also really engaged with these questions, not just from a magical perspective, but because that was how they got access to, the th to ideas sort of beyond their normal lives. They just, it just looks very different than when we do it. Um, one of the things that I think is also worth touching on is when it says that um, the person wouldn't respond to him, what exactly is going on there? Um, why, is that a why does Rabbi Zera understand that to be a sign that this person isn't real or isn't really a person? Why does he take it as a sign? So he, in the text it says, um, Rabbi Zera would speak to him, but he wouldn't answer. So Rabbi Zera says, you must have been created by one of the chaverim, one of the rabbis, not by, not a real person. Really? I mean, I've definitely had conversations with my husband where I've said his name a couple of times and he didn't respond, and I'm pretty sure he's still a person. Like, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so so what, what do you think the Gemara is actually saying when it's talking, when it says, he wouldn't answer. What's, it, feels, it feels to me like there should be something deeper going on there. And I was wondering, do you feel the same? What do you think? So do you think the rabbi, by the golem not answering him, mm -hmm. starts to doubt himself? As, Why can't I can't get through to this. Definitely possible. So return it to dust. Right. I'm done with you. That'll validate me again. Right. Although presumably it would only work if the golem was in fact dust to begin with, because like I could say return to your dust to a bunch of people and nothing happens. So in some ways that might actually be a test that if when Rabbi Zera says, return to your dust, it's actually his way of testing, is this really a person or is this really, or is this a golem? Mm -hmm. Because um, it's not gonna do anything to a real person, but the idea of him not speaking seems to really trouble Rabbi Zera. Mm -hmm. um, and yet, the phrase um, in Aramaic, velo hava kamahadarle, that he didn't respond to him, it's really interesting to try to understand what that means because it's usually understood he didn't answer with words, but it could actually mean he didn't react at all to him, that he sort of was almost programmed 
So I, and I think that's a really crucial distinction that I've definitely had conversations with people who either couldn't or wouldn't speak, but who also very clearly responded to my presence. And I don't want this text to be read as saying that like speech is an absolute important part of being human. That's definitely, I think, not what it's saying, but I think it's using, it's using response as a shorthand because the Gemara often speaks in shorthand and has, I would say like a shockingly small vocabulary in the sense that it doesn't use very many words. So words often convey multiple concepts. So part of the reader's job is to figure out, is it just that he's silent or is there something more going on? I think there's something more going on, but I'm also biased because I've read the whole source sheet already. <laughs> I'm cheating. <laughs> so I wanna follow the thread of the golem for a little bit longer and go further on, much further on in history to um, the Chacham Tzvi. So now we are in um, Amsterdam. It is the 17th century. And the Chacham Tzvi is the rabbi of Amsterdam, the chief rabbi of Amsterdam. His grandfather married, or married into the family of Rabbi Eliyahu Baal Shem of Chalm, who, among other things, is supposedly the first um, Ashkenazi rabbi who ever created a golem, which is definitely something to be known for. Um, so for the Chacham Tzvi, this isn't just a hypothetical question, this is also family history. So he takes on, um, within his series of responsa, which are questions that he is either asked or that he asks himself in order to answer, they're usually questions like, if this situation happened um, with a piece of meat and a pot of milk, what's the status of the milk? What's the status of the pot? Or sometimes more, complex questions like how um, if there's a situation and somebody wants to get married on Friday night, is that okay? How can we do that? Very kind of down-to-earth questions. He asks the following question. Does the golem count in a minion? Just up in between 92 and 94, both of which are, as I recall, very practical. He, says, he just wonders, does the golem count in a minion? Which I guess is one way of asking, is the golem a person? And this is where he gives the answer. Although this creature has the appearance of a man, it has neither psyche nor soul nor spirit and is merely alive. And since this creation does not even have the soul of a person, it cannot be part of a Jewish ritual. This provides support to the previous idea that since the golem lacks even the soul of a person, it has no business or relevance being part of that which requires 10 or even three Jews. 10 Jews being necessary for a minion, three Jews being necessary for, um, for grace after meals, having sort of a small quorum. So he's like, no, he uses the same, he actually draws on the Gemara that we read earlier, elsewhere in his answer, to say, this is clear that this person that Reva created is a golem and isn't real. So to here, it's not enough for you to look like a person or even to have been created by a Jewish person for you to count as a Jew for these purposes. The golem can't be Jewish because the golem doesn't have a psyche or a soul or a spirit. It's not necessarily about looking like a person, it's about being a person, mind, body, spirit, all the way through. And the golem's just not that. Um, it is super convenient that he actually answers this question because otherwise I think we'd all be wondering forever on. Like, but, real, but what if, how would we know? Um, it's interesting because his son, Rabbi Yaakov Emden, who was a very, very controversial figure, writes some notes on this because he actually gets mad because his father left out the best part, which is the story of his great, 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 possibly one more great, grandfather creating the golem, which um, originally, as with most golem stories, was created um, in order to protect the people of Chalm, but as the golem went on, it became larger and larger and grew more dangerous. And Rabbi Eliyahu Baal Shem became afraid of this unstoppable growth, lest the golem destroy the world. And so he went and removed the name of God, which is apparently how you bring the golem to life, from the forehead of the golem. And the golem collapsed and returned to dust. But in the process of collapsing, it harmed Rabbi Eliyahu Baal Shem and left a mark on Rabbi Eliyahu's forehead since Rabbi Eliyahu himself tried to remove the mark by force. So he scarred in the same place where the golem had the name of God, which 
I think it's possible almost to read that as slightly undercutting the whole idea that the golem isn't a person, that Rabbi Eliyahu, for all that maybe he did the right thing for preventing the golem from taking over the world, is being punished just a little bit for taking away its existence. And the, the, the mark hits in the exact same spot where he removed the mark of God's name. So in some ways, the story gets a little complicated that Rav Yaakov Emden's story, he's unwilling to let the golem be nothing. He's not a person. It's not real. He certainly doesn't argue that the golem can count in a minion. And yet, there's, there's something to it. There's something holding on that like, maybe, maybe there's something between dust and a human being. Maybe, there's, maybe it's a little more complicated. I, I do tend to like things when they're a little more complicated. I know there are people who don't. But I, I sort of like the fact that um, these generations of rabbis retelling their family histories add color to the story. Okay, so, so far we have um, conversion, intent, action. Artificial, as far as we can tell here, anything that doesn't have a soul, anything that isn't um, a person in the way that we understand personhood, doesn't count as a person, can't be Jewish. Um, all right, final part, intelligence. If we have Jewish artificial intelligence, we have to figure out what it means to be intelligent, or at least what um, collections of Jewish texts think. So, because we had Maimonides earlier, now we get Nachmanides, who lived about um, 100 years or so after Maimonides. He's a philosopher, a mystic, an extraordinary commentator on the Torah. And right here we have the beginning of his commentary on um, Genesis 2-7, which is, which is the creation of man. Um, so here's what he says. There are three souls that God gave humankind when man was created. The first is the soul of growth, like that which imbues plants and that allows all things to grow. The second is the soul of movement, like that which imbues animals and allows all things to move about. And the third is the soul of knowledge, or possibly sapience, which Uncleus explains is the power of speech that God breathes into man's nostrils. So he's, he's drawing on sort of some philosophical ideas from the Middle Ages, that there are, there are four categories of things. There's the lowest category, which is um, in Hebrew called domain, um, rocks, stones, things that are dust, the thing from which the golem is made. And then there's the second category, which is someach, which are plants, things that grow, but things that can't move. Um, the third category is chaya, animals, things that are alive. And then the final category is um, medaber, things that can speak. And this, like I said, I was cheating because I knew that speech was going to come up again. Um, here, Ramban seems, my mom, sorry, Nachmanides, seems to be telling us that there is something integral to the idea of, um, or a link between knowledge and speech. So, if that's the case, what, how would you necessarily explain that? Um, what do you think he's trying to get at here? What do you, or to, borrow the question that I wrote on the page. What do you think speech actually means here? Tell us the thought. Put ideas together. Speak, I think in this case, doesn't necessarily have to be out loud. It can be internal. Right. When we pray, sometimes we pray out loud. Sometimes we pray silently. Yeah. So speech is the outward manifestation of internal ideas, cognition, something going on. But since we can't really look and like slice off people's heads, look in and say, oh yeah, speech is going on, or thoughts are going on in there. The way that we, the best way for us to know what's going on in someone's mind is they express it to us. Um, this has historically been a really fraught issue um, for dealing with um, disability sometimes that there are earlier texts in, Jew in um, the Jewish canon that treat somebody who can't speak and can't hear as not on, the f as not on a full level of observance the way that um, a person who can hear and can speak is, that as, especially in the 19th century, when people realized that an inability to speak was not the same as an inability to think, um, then they started basically redefining that category 
which is something really important and mostly um, something great that Jewish law has done very recently. That the ability to recognize that speech is just kind of a heuristic right now. It's not actually um, necessary or sufficient to understand that somebody thinks. There are plenty of ways to um, observe that somebody responds to you, which is also why in the story with um, Rava and his golem, it's important to think of it as response, that somebody, who's, somebody who can interact with other people or who can respond, show things, not in, some circu not in all circumstances, and for especially some people, not if you approach them in the wrong way, but there are very few people who can't respond at all. And even if they can't, we sort of, we know that there are thoughts going on in their minds. We know that human beings think because we know that they have souls. Because we're told here, Unkelos reminds us that God breathes soul into Adam. We know that human beings have souls because we see it. We see it in the Torah, so we can rely on that. And we don't need to ask these, we don't necessarily ask these questions. The problem, I think, perhaps with the golem is that we don't have that same knowledge. We, don't, we can't assume that life was breathed into the machines. So how, how do we trust that they can respond? And in, these, and in the cases we saw earlier with Rava's golem and with the Chacham Tzvi's golem, or the Chacham Tzvi's ancestor's golem, then it's much, it's much easier for them because they can say, no response, nothing here, this is boring, we're done. Um, where I think this question starts to get interesting is where um, being human and being able to have intent start to separate from one another. Um, so there's one more source that we're gonna look at um, that actually deals with this a little bit, and then, and then we can start, and then we can see whether we've done enough to be our 31st century rabbis answering our robot friend. Um, so this is a source that deals with the conversion of a minor child, which usually means, in this case, a child below the age of three. Um, there's an assumption that parents can convert their children, but it's usually fathers, because fathers had authority back then. Um, so this is a case of a non-Jewish minor. If he has a living father, the father can convert him. And if he does not have a living father, and he comes to convert, or if his mother brings him to convert, a beitin, the court, can convert him because it's a merit to him. There's this principle in halacha that you can do beneficial things for, you can assume that people want good things done for them. So, you, so even if they're not around to consent to it, you can assume that they would want it to have happened. Um, like for example, I, I think this is the right example. Um, you, can, you assume that somebody would want you to borrow their sidor to daven because they want to get the merit of your mitzvah so you can borrow it and return it very quickly. Things like that. This is another example. You assume that somebody wants to convert and wants to be part of the Jewish people. So therefore, even though this is a child who's too young to actually know what they're doing, we, the Beitin does this for him anyway. Um, okay. So whether he is a minor who is converted at his father's behest or whether he was converted by the court, the Beitin, he can protest his conversion when he is older. We do not consider him to be an apostate Jew, but rather a non-Jew. So this is the idea that um, at bar and bat mitzvah, people, uh, people who converted when they were younger sort of fully confirm what, what choice they'd made. So in this case, this child, when they're actually old enough to make the decision for themselves, they get to decide. Um, this is actually the one case I said earlier that we don't undo conversions. This is the one exception. That a child who decides when they reach 13 that like, yeah, mom, you thought this was a good idea when I was two, but I don't actually want to do this. We don't treat them as somebody who's Jewish and rejecting Judaism. We treat them as someone who is never Jewish in the first place. Because when, going all the way back to our original argument, because when they originally converted, they didn't have intent. So they can put the intent in retroactively. Um, they're doing it sort of in the reverse order of Maimonides. Maimonides had first intent or precondition of intent, and then the actions. Here they have the action, and when they're old enough to show intent, we ask them to show it. But if they decide no, then it's as if none of the other stuff ever happened. So this is one of those, yeah? It's as if the conversion never took place. Exactly. So we're not losing a Jew. We never had him in the beginning. Right, it's almost like, the, it's, it's almost like a conditional conversion in the first place. Uh -huh. We're not really, like, we hope that this person would decide to remain Jewish, but if they choose not to, we're not gonna treat them we're treating them as somebody who's making this decision for the first time, not as somebody who's had this decision made and is going to renege on it. Right. Yeah, so I think this really highlights this question of 
being able to have will and intent and, um, and being able to make the decision for yourself. So that's, so that's sort of, I think between those two, we can start to build up at least Jewish text ideas of intelligence seem to be based on the ability to um, not necessarily speak, but think. Um, speech is just a proxy for, for being ensouled and having, and having knowledge, having a will, and then, being, and then being able to exercise that will. So if we're in the 31st century, yep. okay, and as our bodies age, they wear out, but not necessarily mm -hmm. our minds. We've, we've created the ability to take the mind uh -huh. and build, the, build this artificial body around it. Yeah. Okay. So it's my mind, but it's, you know, it's whatever the... Robotics. Well, mm -hmm. it's beyond robotics. <laughs> it, it looks like me, it, you know, it has my mannerisms, yeah. but it's not a... It wasn't the, the body that I was born with. Yeah. Can that be Jewish? That's a good question. If you... If you put your mind into another body, um, I assume that this, that this is not the body of another person who you've taken over. Let's assume that it's a mechanic. Let's assume it's an artificial body. Um, I think, in many ways, like I think it's even a, it's a stronger version of this question. That do you need to be? You have the will. You have the ability to exercise it. You can't be circumcised. You can't, but possibly you already were. And then there's also the the female question where um, women also don't need to be circumcised in order to be Jewish, is the requirement for circumcision only on people for whom it's relevant? So if you're in, a, if you're in an artificial body, then it's no longer relevant, so it's no longer a requirement. I think it's actually, I think it's a pretty good test case that like... <laughs> there's, al there's always more Torah. <laughs> so yeah, I think that there are two possible ways of approaching it. One is saying that human beings are ensouled, are sort of born into the bodies they are born in, and that's where their soul lies. And that is the, and that is the end of what it means to be human. And anything that is not human because it is not a human soul in a human body can't be Jewish because of the Chacham Tzvi and because of the idea of the way that the texts treat artificial intelligence. Or you can say the opposite. That the issue with these artificial intelligences is that they're not intelligent. These are, they're just artificial people. They're just artificial non-people. Once you actually have artificial intelligence, intelligence that moves from sort of the two-year-old who can't accept Judaism on themselves to the 13-year-old who can, you suddenly have something that presumably actually does have a soul now. Like, you can't there's no way to look inside a person and find their soul. All you can rely on is the exercise of their will, the way that they manifest it. So when you have a robot that seems to be manifesting a will and a desire to be Jewish and wanting to be a part of this, then that's, that's what you need. Then maybe that robot has a soul. Maybe that robot can be Jewish. That seems to be the two poles. <laughs> so rabbis of the 31st century, which direction? Would you, would you convert our robot friend? Let's assume that this robot is waterproof and we can dunk him in the mikveh if we had to. I don't know. I'm conflicted. Can you say what the conflict is? It doesn't have a soul. It has an artificial mind, in my opinion. Mm -hmm. It doesn't have a soul, though. And God breathes life into the soul. So it's not a person. How are we going to convert something that's mechanical? I say no. So, okay, we have one vote for no, because at the end of the day, an artificial mind is not the same thing as an insouled person. It just, it's just categorically different, and there's nothing we can do. Right? And, and I can live with that if it's an artificial mind. But what I premised was it wasn't an artificial <laughs> mind. It was my mind put into an artificial body. So, so, so you should answer that question. Mind and soul are two different things. I understand. But my essence is, is now my personality, my brain. But where's your soul? Certainly not in the, the artificial body. 
Right. I don't, I don't argue with that. This is kind of the Tin Man problem, where the Tin Man in The Wizard of Oz chops off his limbs one by one and replaces them with tin until he's replaced his entire self with tin. But is he a different person than he was at the beginning, or is he, is he still contiguous with himself? Um, we're sort of asking the same question here. At which point do we stop being ourselves? We've got a thousand years to figure it out. It's not the end of the world if we don't solve it tonight. I, okay, so I was asked what my answer is. Um, I admit I lean a little bit on the side of anything that can convey to me that it has a will and desire and a drive to serve God and that says sort of, your people shall be my people and your God shall be my God, then, I'm gonna say I'm gonna say sure. I'm gonna try it, um, and I'm also kind of conflicted about making that decision. But yeah, I think I'd fall just a little bit on the side of convert the robot. Right. I'm saying it's still my essence. Right. But yeah. What if it was a non-Jew? Then, then you would be. Then you would need to be converted yeah. if you want to become a Jew. Yes. Right. So we should tell people that if you intend to convert to Judaism, please convert before um, before you begin your artificial body. <laughs> yeah. That's true. Look at all the people now that have artificial knees and shoulders and whatever. There, there's technology today that allows your brain to control artificial limbs. Mm -hmm. So it's you know it's not, it's not a giant leap to when that becomes a complete. Yeah. Right. Not mine either, I don't think. Right. Eventually. Yeah. That's true. Right. Person thinks and the computer does it. Yeah. I mean, in some ways, that already happens. Like, I, I think I type something into my computer, and then something, and then something somewhere else moves. Like, I've occasionally um, turned on sort of the music in my house when I'm not home, um, when sort of other family members are, sometimes just to scare them, but also sometimes because um, I happen to be in control of the music. <laughs> but yeah, so that's, I, I act, I think, I make something happen, and then it happens all the way over there. It seems very far, very distant from, my ability. Um, but I think we're already living in a world where we do so much that controls other things, like driving. We don't think about it anymore because it's something that's natural and it's something that's part of our lives. But we control this giant hunk of metal and just send it in the right direction most of the time. Um, occasionally, ways steers us wrong and we send it in the wrong direction and then have to do a U-turn. But overall, like, we spend a lot of time controlling robots. At what point do we stop thinking of sort of our hands controlling robots? Now we're starting to get our voices controlling robots. It's a really not so smart robot um, that lives in my house, the Amazon Echo, but it follows basic directions. Where does that, where does that go? At what, point is, at what point does it move from my voice to my brain waves? At what point do I start distinguishing between this is me and this is not me? It's very complicated. And also, part of the reason that I think it's fun to talk about now is that if we don't come to an answer tonight, nobody's life's going to be changed. That, that, that as we think about it now, it's not fraught. And having said all of that, one of the things that I think this conversation makes really clear is that the lines that we're drawing for ourselves are about um, non-humans. Um, leaving aside your brain in the vat question, or and the idea of a mind in an artificial body where we're still working with someone who was a person, who probably still is a person. Um, I think also it's really hard to make decisions about this with just imagining what it'll be like as opposed to, I think when this kind of thing exists and we start talking to someone and realize, oh, this is, this is my best friend from high school. They're in a different body now, but it's still them. We might feel differently about it or we might not. We might still be confused by this idea of them in a new artificial body. 
but what it, I think, brings home to us is the degree to which we owe all of the human converts to Judaism, all the people who want to convert, our respect, our, um, our understanding, our appreciation for sort of their soul and their will and their connection to Judaism. Because at the end of the day, um, I think questions like this really highlight how far we have to go before we can even start asking the question of what can we really do this? Like if we're at the point where can my Roomba convert to Judaism is where the question begins, then of course all of these incredible people who want to be a part of the Jewish nation who are very real human beings, they're not golems, they're not dust, they're just like us, then like sort of how much more so do we owe them our time and our patience and our appreciation for their will? Um, okay, I will now step quietly off my soapbox because I think, that, I think that that's one of the things that it's important to take away from, that it's not always about science fiction. Sometimes it's also about the real people. Um, and on the one hand, science fiction lets us get at these questions and talk about them in a safe way, but also we can occasionally get a little too far afield. And it's important to remember that when it comes to real people, there's a lot of very real compassion that needs to happen. Um, all right. Any, so I feel like I haven't quite answered your um, <laughs> artificial body question yet, although. We got, we yeah, <laughs> we've got time to figure it out. Any, any other questions before we, before we close? I wish Adam had been here. <laughs> we have one son who uh, probably could you and he could have quite a discussion. <laughs> well, I I like talking about this, so feel free feel free to give him my contact info. I'm always I'm always up for a good discussion of robots, golems, and Judaism. Well, thank you. This was for me extremely interesting. <laughs> yeah. really Great. I really enjoyed it. I really thank you. Enjoyed it. Thank I you. I'm so that. glad. Did you? I did. <laughs> I got what did you learn? Well, that you're not going to be converted if you're not Jewish as a robot. <laughs> well, no. The, the, the essence of, of what it takes to become Jewish. Mm -hmm. It was very good. Yeah. Thanks. Thank, Thank you. I'm, I'm so glad. I'm so glad you were here. <laughs> um, yes. I really, um, if you want to look at the final thing, because I couldn't resist, there's a short passage from Frankenstein at the end. Yeah. If you want to think about, like, our paradigmatic Western example of the golem with a soul. I think it's probably Frankenstein's creature. So he's always, yeah, he's always great. Thank you. Hi, this is Shmuley Yanklewitz. I hope you enjoyed listening to this fascinating lecture. At VBM, we strive to bring you only the best in Jewish educational programming. To do this, we host a wide variety of events throughout our learning season, including panels, classes, and lectures, like the one you just listened to. Please consider going to www.valleybetemidrash.org and donating to VBM to support meaningful Jewish education in the greater Phoenix Jewish community, indeed all around the country and the world. Thank you so much for listening.